Now let's uh, turn back to the passage we read from the Word of God in the Gospel according to Luke and chapter 7. And uh, reading again where Christ speaks to Simon in verse 47. And uh, Christ is speaking about the woman, and he says to Simon, Therefore I say to you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. So her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Now the scene here is set at a a feast, at a table in the house of a Pharisee, a man called Simon, a man of whom we know nothing except what's revealed here. Simon is a very common name amongst the Jewish people. I suppose in one way it's a surprise to find Christ eating with a Pharisee, but that is actually something that you find quite often in the scriptures. When Christ first appeared, the Pharisees would have welcomed him, and um, many of them certainly came out to John the Baptist's baptism when he first began to preach repentance. They only turned against John the Baptist when they discovered that John required repentance of themselves too. So they were comfortable enough with others being required to repent, but not themselves. So they would have understood John originally to be of the same stamp as themselves, a supporter of God's law, which he definitely was, anti-Sadducee and liberal religion, which John most certainly was. But as I said, when they discovered that John had a message of repentance for them too, They were not so keen. We're told in the scriptures that they rejoiced in his light for a time. Now, for exactly the same reasons, eh, the Pharisees would have welcomed the ministry of Christ. They would have recognized him as of their own school, anti-Sadducee, a supporter of the law and an upholder of Moses' laws and customs. Uh, But again, when they discovered that Christ's message cut across uh, their own particular lifestyle and their own beliefs, they began to reject him too. But earlier in his ministry, he was very welcome in the home of the Pharisees. And clearly at this point, uh, although the tension had begun, the rupture wasn't complete. And... uh, There were two things, I suppose, that completed that rupture. It it wasn't just the fact that he was calling them to repentance and change, but he also claimed to be the Messiah himself. Now, instead of rejecting that claim outright, they ought intelligently and spiritually to have prayed over it, um, because someone had to be the Messiah. But they, of course, rejected him. And the reason, the primary reason for rejecting him wasn't something like, where he came from, or coming from Galilee, or something like that, but the fact that, again, he rebuked themselves. That's a reminder to his friends of our inherent self-righteousness. 
and our um, instinctive resistance to the message of the gospel. We instinctively resist it, although it's good news, because it first of all tells us bad news about ourselves. And uh, we just don't like to to hear that unless uh, the power of God opens our ears to it. And uh, I would plead with you whenever the word of God or whenever the preaching of the word um, seems to be attacking yourself or seems to be identifying something in yourself that's wrong, don't use that as an excuse to run away from it in kind of self-righteous anger, but stay under the light, the light of God's word and be exposed by it, be exposed to God by it, so that uh, like David in the psalm that we sang, you would come to him and say against thee, thee only have I sinned and according to your mercy, uh, according to your loving kindness, have mercy upon me. Now, as this house uh, fills, Christ, of course, is the chief guest himself. Um, At some point, a woman comes in, and uh, although she's well known in uh, Capernaum itself, she's unnoticed. If she had been noticed, a fuss would have been made about her presence a lot earlier than it actually was. Um, I suppose there's a twofold reason why she was unnoticed. First of all, the women who were with Christ himself were told that a group of uh, women followed him and they ministered uh, to his needs. They would not have recognized this woman. They would have assumed, assumed obviously, that she was a local woman. And uh, on the other hand, the locals would have assumed that she was from Galilee. Now, you would have expected them to recognize her. But I would suggest to you that it's more than likely that her appearance had already fairly radically changed. If she was um, engaged in what people call uh, euphemistically the world's oldest profession, then there were certain habits of clothes and dress that distinguished such kind of such kinds of women, and uh, I would suggest to you very strongly that all that has changed, uh, and the reason it's changed is because her heart has already changed, and uh, this woman doesn't become a believer at this table. It is quite clear that she's a believer before she enters the house at all, and uh, because her heart has already changed. I would say that her appearance had changed too. That is something about the grace of God. I know it changed my appearance. I'm sure it probably changed your appearance too. If anything, inward or outward, we feel that we are out of line with what the word of God requires, then we will change it. Many a person has had their external appearance changed simply because of the grace of God in their lives. Now, this woman makes her way, and she's able to, she makes her way to just behind the table where Christ is reclined along with the rest, and she finds herself where his feet are stretched out. Now, the Bible doesn't really say all that much about this woman. It draws a discreet veil over her. Uh, Why publicize who she was or what she had been. But it is important to recognize that she was known in the city. In verse 39, um, 
when Simon becomes aware of her presence and what she's actually doing, he says to himself, if this man was really a prophet, he would know who she is. And especially he would know what manner or what kind of woman this is who is touching him because she is a sinner. So she was known and her lifestyle was known. And in fact, it's not just Simon who refers to her as a sinner, but Luke himself in the writing of the gospel, he refers to her in the same way. In verse 37, Behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner. When she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood at his feet. And now when um, Luke calls her that, he is using the language of the day. Uh, Pharisees and people generally tended to refer to people who were far gone in sin as sinners. Now, to some extent, we can understand that, but it's a dangerous thing. When you begin to confine a term that should be applicable in some respects to everybody, it's dangerous just to confine it to a few people who are notoriously deep in sin. But one of the effects that has is to somehow divorce the term from yourself so that you don't see yourself as a sinner. It's quite obvious that Simon doesn't really think of himself as a sinner. And many of us, even if we acknowledge that somehow we sin, would still not be comfortable calling ourselves sinners. But when Luke calls her a sinner here, he is using the language of the day, and he is basically telling us that this woman is a fallen woman. She is openly sinful. Fallen woman in the sense, again, that people use that expression. Now, these kinds of people appear in the gospel narrative. You'll remember the woman of Samaria who had been five times married and was now openly living with somebody else. But she finds herself sitting beside a well in the heat of the day with the Messiah and she embraces the Messiah and finds a new life. Now, this woman um, has been living that kind of life. But the fact that she hears that Christ is present at this feast and the fact that she makes the effort to bring an alabaster box with her and makes her way to his feet proves a couple of things. First of all, it proves that if she was indeed engaged in what I said, is euphemistically called the world's oldest profession, she obviously did very well out of it. This ointment, um, encased in alabaster boxes, was a very expensive ointment. It originates in India from the Himalaya region, extremely expensive, and it was encased in sealed boxes that normally had to be broken in order to prove their authenticity. So this woman is obviously wealthy enough. But it proves something more important than that. What what it proves is an intention on her part. She took the box with her and she took it for a reason. Now, we're familiar with Mary doing that. 
we have the account of uh, Mary anointing the Lord, which is a a deeper action spiritually than this one. I I don't have obviously the time to to compare the two, although it would be interesting to do it. But Mary's action was a deeper action at the spiritual level than this one, or or let me say it was a wider action at the spiritual level than this one. She she in, certainly intended more by her anointing of Christ than this woman did here. But certainly this woman also takes it for a reason. She is either intending to anoint the Lord Jesus Christ or perhaps even to give the alabaster box as a gift. It's quite obvious that the apostles and those who were in the ministry um, including the women who looked after them, were themselves living on the gifts of people and on the people of God. So this may well have been intended by her to give as a gift. If that was her intention, then she certainly ended up using it in a very different uh, and divinely inspired way. But quite clearly, Christ had already become precious to her. He had already become precious. We shouldn't think of this woman as being converted at the table here. Not at all. She has already been touched by grace. The fact is that nobody knows it yet. Uh, this, this is where it's being revealed to everybody. Um, and love for Christ is like that. I mean, it may be secret for a time, but it just can't stay secret. It can't stay hidden. Uh, it has to express itself. It's impossible for the love of Christ to dwell in anybody's heart and for it to find no expression. You just can't do that. We, we read of some in the scriptures who were secret disciples. It's not long since we looked at uh, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, two members of the Sanhedrin who were not consenting to the vote uh, to execute Jesus and to put him to death, uh, we're told that they were both secret disciples. Uh, so their faith and their love remained hidden. But remember, it could not remain hidden. When the time came for Jesus to be brought down from the cross, it was um, Joseph and Nicodemus who took his body down from the cross and who uh, wrapped it for burial and who entombed his body in spices before it was entombed in the grave. And by doing so, they effectively lost their place in the, in the Sanhedrin. They lost their place in the estimation of the Jewish people. Their whole social circle was changed overnight. Everything changed. Why? Because they expressed their love for the Lord Jesus Christ. As long as it remained hidden, well, these things were not in danger, but it can't remain hidden. And I think that brings before us the important point that God doesn't allow it to remain hidden because God is not content with secret discipleship and with secret faith. While it may exist, he will not allow it to stay that way. So he will put a test before you. He will put a test before you, a test to determine really whether that Secret discipleship is a genuine discipleship or not. And the test will consist in 
bringing it out to the open. And if it cannot be brought out to the open, it cannot be real. And this woman too has hidden or is still in hiding. But, but here comes a test. The Messiah is close by and there is something that she can do. So she comes into the house. How she gets in, we don't know. And she's able to go so far as to find herself behind the feet of Christ, directly behind the feet of Christ uh, when he is speaking. And as she hears him speak, she begins to cry. It's easy to overlook that here, but it is a beautiful thing that she cries. She cries because, because of the power of the gospel, because of the sweetness of the gospel. And that power and sweetness are in connection with her own life. The life that she's been living and the life that she's now embracing. As, as she hears them speak, it all comes to her so powerfully what she has been and what by the grace of God she now is. Now, I think she possibly lacks assurance of faith. I'll come to that a little later on, but I think it's probably fair to say that she does lack assurance of faith. Wouldn't you, perhaps, if if you had just changed like this in the in the quietness of your own home, conscious of the life that you'd lived? But you know, it's a it's a wonderful thing to see people in tears under the gospel, and uh, as I say that, I am conscious that we see so little of it. So few tears and so little crying when the gospel is actually preached. And I wonder why that is. Now, we may well say that it's probably got something to do with the proclamation of the gospel lacking power. Now, that may well be true. I do believe, and I've often said so, that the proclamation of the gospel lacks power in our day. It lacks the it lacks the power that is brought about by the accompaniment of the Holy Spirit as the word is preached. So that may be so. But the gospel can be present in power without that power reaching you. Just because the power of God is in evidence doesn't mean that it necessarily overpowers you. And to say that the reason for the lack of tears somehow lies in the lack of power accompanying the gospel may be a way of excusing yourself. May the explanation for the lack of tears lie in you, the hearer, and me when I am a hearer too, or indeed when I preach the gospel. As Christ says later uh, to Simon, he says, those who are forgiven little love little. And those who love little, cry little. Is, is the lack of tears simply an evidence of love gone cold? Is it an evidence that you perceive somehow that your sins are not that great anymore? Or that they never really were all that great? So correspondingly, the forgiveness of Christ is not that great. It's not to be wondered at anymore. 
It's not to be humbled by any more. If our sense, certainly, of forgiveness is little, then our love will be little too. Does that explain the lack of tears? But anyway, as she cries at his feet, her tears fall on his feet, and she becomes obviously conscious of that. And when she becomes conscious of it, she notices too that the Lord's feet have not been washed. Now, as you well know, travellers in that area in that time would have very hot and dusty feet. And she notices that her Lord's feet are like that. And she does something very unusual. She possibly began to wipe his feet with her hands, but in any case, she unloosens her hair, which is her glory, as Paul says, a, a woman's hair is her glory, and she wipes the dirt of her Lord's feet with her hair. And then she actually is moved further to begin to kiss his feet. And uh, even that's not enough. And I think the reason why that's not enough is because, as Isaiah says, how beautiful are the feet of the one who brings good news. So having wiped them clean and having kissed them, she does more. Whatever her original intention with the alabaster flask, I don't suppose anyone can know, but she opens it there and then, and she anoints his feet with the fragrant oil. He is altogether lovely in this woman's sight, and his feet to her especially so. Now, by this time, I think you can well imagine that a conversation has stopped and that all eyes are on the woman. Uh, the same obviously happened when Mary, some time later, opened her alabaster flask and did something very similar, although not identical. And when Mary broke the box, certainly people saw it in different ways. Jude, Judas Iscariot murmured that it was a waste of expensive ointment. The disciples ended up agreeing with him. Christ, of course, saw the incident very, very differently. Now, here we have the same kind of disagreement about what the action means or how it's to be understood. I want us just for a while, with God's help, to look at what the woman does through the eyes, first of all, of Simon, the host. And then we'll see it through the eyes of Christ, who is the chief guest. So we're really thinking about the, the woman, the woman who is memorialized for us here, and we're going to see her through the eyes of Simon, the host, and then through the eyes of Christ, the chief guest. Now, first of all, Simon. And what Simon has to say, he doesn't say out loud. He just says it to himself. If he's had doubts about the Lord Jesus Christ, these doubts are now confirmed. He says, this man, if he were a prophet, in other words, uh, I've thought so, I've been willing to think so, 
that if he were a prophet, he would know who this woman is and what kind of woman this is who is touching him because she is a sinner. Now, if you're going to be honest, and if we're all going to be honest, we would have an element of sympathy with Simon here. Um, And if you don't, then I suppose that that's a failure on your part to really put yourself in his shoes. When he has made a meal like this, and suddenly a woman like this, well-known, is interrupting it by performing like this. He knows her. He knows her reputation, and this just doesn't look right. Doesn't look right. And in fairness, what Simon thought was what probably many others were thinking. But no one is prepared to articulate it. Now, the fact that we can understand that doesn't hide the fact that there's something far wrong here. There's something wrong with the way Simon sees the woman and there's something wrong with the way that he sees Christ. First, the way that he sees the woman. She is a sinner. And that's all there is to it as far as he's concerned. He just can't see beyond that and he can't see behind it. He's forgotten if he ever knew that there was a place for change and restoration in the kingdom of God. Uh, The fact that Jesus taught people that they needed to be born again shouldn't have been a new teaching. That wasn't a brand new lesson that Jesus taught. I mean, some people think of it like that. They think that the need to be born again wasn't known in the world until Jesus preached it. No, what Jesus was doing was reminding them of a foundational thing that they'd forgotten. In pretty much the same way as Luther, when he proclaimed justification by faith, wasn't proclaiming anything new. He was proclaiming something that had been forgotten or twisted or covered over. Has Simon forgotten that you need to be changed to enter into the kingdom of heaven? Has he forgotten the need to be born again? And has he forgotten that there may be many reasons why? A person is in the situation that this woman is in. There's no doubt that it's a sinful life. And to some extent it must be her choice. But still there are lots of reasons why people can be found or why women can be found in this situation. But for Simon it it doesn't really matter. He's, He's fallen into the error that most of the Pharisees fell into. And that is that if people exist like this and live their lives like this, well, they're to be written off because God has written them off. In other words, whatever the need for salvation, it doesn't apply to them. God has put a mark on their foreheads. These people and tax collectors and other people like them that don't waste your time. They are beyond the pale. They're beyond the reach of the gospel. They're beyond its call. To be associating with them or to be allowing them to touch you, as this woman touched the Lord Jesus Christ here, was saying as much about you as about them. So that's the way, sadly, that he sees her. Now, I hope whatever is true of people, 
that we don't lose sight of the fact that they are created originally in the image of God, that they have souls that are savable, whatever their existing condition, and that no one is beyond bringing the news of the Lord Jesus Christ to, irrespective of their situation. We mustn't lose sight of that. The day we begin to see people as riffraff or uh, people who just aren't worth bothering with, is a sad, sad day for ourselves spiritually. That's how he sees her. What about the way he sees Christ? Well, you need to step back and ask there too, why does he think he came in the first place? He thinks this man is a prophet. Obviously, the way he speaks when he says, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what manner man he is. In other words, I am only seeing just now that he isn't. But hitherto, I've been prepared to accept that he is. Is he the Messiah? If so, what do you think the Messiah comes into the world to do? What do you think a prophet does? What do you think a preacher does? Is this man for the sick or is he for the healthy? If he was for the healthy, what's the need for him in the first place? The Bible is clear that Christ, just like every ambassador who ever came in his name, came to seek and to save that which is lost. And that involves all kinds of people. It involved the righteous Nicodemus in John chapter 3, who was a leading churchman in his day but needed to be saved. It involved the woman of Samaria in chapter 4, who was again a fallen woman like this, but needing to be saved too. Does he really think that the Messiah can come into the world and have nothing to do with sinners? I hope in our quest to live a godly life, and I hope in our quest to associate with those who know and love the Lord and, like David, to be their companions. And in our determination not to gather with sinners in their sinful pursuits, I hope we never give the impression that we have no time to speak with sinners, that we have no interest in their eternal welfare. And if you're hearing this message as someone who is in that category where you feel that there's no interest in you, believe me, friend, that there is. And that not only I, but so many more in, in our own congregation, seek your best and pray for your best and earnestly desire to speak to you about what is best for you. We have an interest in you and we have a love for you. And in so doing, we seek to be like the Saviour. And if in any way we portray ourselves otherwise, then we sin. We sin. It's quite clear that for Simon, everything has somehow become political. The Messiah will come into the world to crush the enemies of Israel and deliver Israel from Roman occupation. Now, all these things are involved in the coming of the Messiah. But he can't see the wood for the trees. He has come to call sinners to repentance. And they can be found in Jerusalem as well as in Rome. But I think the, the thing that that brings home to us is this. It's not just that his view of the woman is wrong or even that his view of Christ is wrong. It's quite obvious that his view of himself is wrong. 
And that's what Jesus is getting at in the little parable that he gives with its application later. To whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. In other words, Christ is saying to him, Simon, obviously, in your eyes, you need little forgiveness. You need little forgiveness. You think this woman needs a lot, but you think that you need little. And I suppose that's real enough. The reality is that Simon would be hard pushed to call himself a sinner. After all, he's fallen into the error of only using that term for people like the woman. Maybe he would acknowledge that he does certain things wrong, but he's never really understood that. He thinks that presenting his annual sacrifices at the temple, appearing regularly at the synagogue week by week, and... uh, Just doing these things are maintaining a state of righteousness with God, not earning it strictly, but simply maintaining it because he he believes he's got it anyway, just by being who he is. As a a son of a Pharisee and as a good Israelite, and he's maintaining that righteousness. He's never really seen his own sins. He's never really seen them. So he's not yet In the kingdom of God. Um, When Christ says in verse 41, there was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they had nothing, both of them, they, they had nothing with which to repay. The creditor just freely forgives both of them. Jesus asks, which will love him more? And Simon says, well, I suppose the one to whom he forgave more. And Jesus said, you have rightly judged. And in verse 47, he goes on to say, therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. Now notice he doesn't say to Simon that his sins are forgiven. He says of the woman that her sins, which are many, are forgiven. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Now, Jesus doesn't mean here that what is genuinely forgiven someone is little. He just puts it this way because the man thinks so. In other words, he's saying to him, Simon, um, your conception is that you don't really have much to be forgiven for. And if not, you don't really understand the gospel. And that's true of you too. It's very hard to look at ourselves as sinners. Me to ask you, do you think yourself a sinner? You to ask me, do you think yourself a sinner? Um, perhaps we can, we can approach that question lots of different ways. Let me ask you what you think about the cross. Have you ever thought the cross to be excessive? Do you think the cross to be unnecessary? Do you think there's something, I don't know, Do you think there's even something repulsive about the idea of the Son of God coming into the world and being tortured and put to death in the way in which he was in order just to forgive people their sins? Is your your response to that, well, is all that really necessary? Well, I would take a response like that to be a sure sign 
that you are spiritually in the same situation as Simon the Pharisee. When someone said to the uh, famous Christian theologian of the Middle Ages, Anselm of Canterbury, that, uh, that the cross was excessive and unnecessary and gruesome and so on, his answer was always, you have not yet pondered the gravity of sin. You have not yet pondered the gravity of sin. If you think the entrance of this Messiah into this world is unnecessary, you have not pondered the gravity of sin. If you think it was necessary for him to go to the cross and to be tortured and slain, you have not yet pondered the gravity of sin. If you, if you think it was too much for the pains of hell to take hold on him, and for him to enter into the pains of hell, or the pains of hell to enter him, it's too much, it's unnecessary. You have not yet pondered the gravity of sin. And you can only ponder the gravity of sin when you see yourself as a sinner. And once you see yourself as a sinner, you will understand why the cross is necessary. You will understand why the crucifixion, and you will appreciate the love of God. And what's more, having appreciated the love of God, you will love him in return. And you won't love little, because you'll know that what you've been forgiven is not little. You will love much. You will love much. And therefore Simon doesn't kiss the Lord on his arrival. He doesn't put perfume on his head. He doesn't provide water to wash his feet. He might be in a hurry to discuss the kingdom of God with him. He might be in a hurry to have a fellowship as religious equals. But he's not pondered the gravity of sin. Simon doesn't know the woman. He doesn't know Christ. He doesn't know himself. And he doesn't know God. And yet he would be considered a notable man in Capernaum. But let's see the action through the eyes of Christ. Suddenly there is a woman shedding tears at his feet, unloosening her hair and wiping his feet with her hair and then pouring an expensive ointment on his feet. You'll notice that everything the Lord says is designed to give her assurance. All is well. Your sins are forgiven you. Your faith has saved you. And you have a new life. Now, I mentioned earlier that this woman probably lacked assurance. Um, most women in this profession, if we can call it that, I'm only accommodating to the language of, of the day and of many days, um, will have been manipulated into it in one way or another. And uh, it's more than likely that she has little sense of self-worth or dignity, whatever wealth she might have amassed. Um, who is she in her own eyes? Well, in spite of efforts at self-justification, I'm sure she thinks very little of herself. And uh, I'm sure she thinks herself beyond being loved and uh, beyond being forgiven, if she has anything to be forgiven for. 
But of course, she now realizes that she has something to be forgiven for. She realizes that. Um, but it's still very hard for her to believe that she can be loved. After all, there's no denying that all that has happened to her is that she has been abused. No man having taken advantage of her situation loves her. These men use her and probably to one degree or another abuse her. Is it a wonder if she finds it hard to believe that the Lord accepts her or that the Lord's grace and mercy can be for herself? Um, what I want to see is that uh, faith and love just work together here in her life. Now, they work together in every Christian's life. And uh, I feel I should, should have maybe made some of this more plain than it's going to be, but just uh, bear with me as the Lord enables us. Love always shines brighter than faith. I think it does, um, because it's greater than love. Uh, Paul tells us that, that faith, hope and love abide, they remain. Other spectacular gifts and graces may disappear, like uh, speaking in tongues or picking up serpents and uh, not being harmed by them and so on. But faith, hope and love remain, they abide. And the greatest of these, he says, is love. Love is greater than faith because faith is a means. Love is the end. The ultimate purpose of God is not that we believe him, but that having believed him, we love him. And that perfect love is restored between himself and ourselves. So it's no wonder that love always shines brighter. But neither is there any doubt that faith is always at love's root. You'll notice that what Jesus says to the woman here, besides telling her that her sins are forgiven in verse 48, he makes plain to her in verse 50 that your faith has saved you. Go in peace. It's your faith that saved you, not your love. And we don't believe because we love, but we love because we believe. Once we believe that God in Christ has died for us and taken our sins, then you love him. It can't be the other way round. It can't be the other round. Where did this faith come from in the woman's heart? Well, where does faith always come from. Paul tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Where does this woman hear? Well, she's living in Capernaum where Christ himself lived. When Nazareth gave him no home, his home or his headquarters were in Capernaum. You'll remember that's where most of his messages were preached and that's where most of his miracles were performed. This, for example, is where the woman with the hemorrhage, who had a hemorrhage of blood for 12 years, this is where she was healed. This is where the daughter of Jairus was raised from the dead. This is where so many people with a hopeless situation were given hope and given a new life. Christ received sinners and ate with them. That's her message that there's hope for her too. 
that the good news in this world is a good news for everybody in this world. It's good news for her. She received it. She believed that Christ was interested in her. And she was converted. Like I said, it's easy to believe that she lacks assurance. But faith in the heart produces love. And as faith goes on, it produces more and more love. And love must find an outlet. It's got to express itself. And when she hears that he is in the neighborhood, she must show that love. And she shows it through the alabaster flask. The, the apostle tells us that faith works by love. Faith works by love. Or if, if, you're, if you're unsure what that means, if you've ever wondered what faith working by love means, Perhaps it's easier for you to get the meaning if we just word it like this. Faith is set to work by love. Uh, Faith is given legs by love. Faith operates by love. That's what happens here, you see. She has faith. And the love that accompanies that faith or the love that grows out of that faith sets that faith to work. It's got to. It's got to. Faith is always set to work by love. And that's what she does when she pours out the expensive ointment. Our own faith is like that too. You faith too. I mean, I don't know. Perhaps you have faith and it's still hidden in the sense that nobody knows that you yourself have turned towards this gospel. But it's got to work by love. You are warming to Christians. You can't but show them special kindness, even when you care for everybody in the world. Uh, You begin to defend them when other people are attacking them. Why do you do that? Because your faith is being set to work by love. You begin to give to his cause, the contribution that you put into the congregation, your financial contribution, isn't just given anymore. Uh, because you've always done that or because you believe that you somehow should do that, but because you want to do that. Why? Because your faith has been set to work by love. Now, there's plenty signs of love in this woman's life. There's first her tears. Why are her tears there? Because she knows she's been forgiven much. Now, you say, oh, well, that's because of the life she lived. Well, fair enough, it's because of the life she's lived. But like I said earlier, if we've been taught anything about ourselves, we've been, we've been taught we're, we're sinners. We are sinners too. And her tears reveal that. She loves the Lord. She can't believe that the Lord accepts the likes of her. Can you believe that the Lord accepts the like of you? Her tears are a sign of her love. She also humbles herself. Her hair is her glory, Paul tells us that. Certainly, he tells women to cover that glory in the public worship. Her glory should be covered by another covering. That is true. But nonetheless, her hair is also given her as a natural covering. Women take pride in their hair, much more so than men. They have more reason to than men. And it takes a whole lot for a woman to to take her glory and to use it to clean hot, sweaty feet. 
mean, can you imagine yourself for a moment as a woman doing this to unloose your hair and just to use it like that in a public situation to clean someone's hot and dusty and sweaty feet? But the fact is that your glory gives way to his glory. And that's that's a sign of being changed. It's not your glory and your reputation that matters. Let, let her take her hair and let her put it to that use. That is the equivalent of ourselves taking our crowns and casting them at the Redeemer's feet. Uh, in the book of the Revelation, the saints do that. They cast their crowns at the feet of the Lord. Our crown and our head is our pride and our joy, but we cast it at his feet well, she does the same. She's not afraid to humble herself. Love is full of humility. Lovelessness is full of pride. Lovelessness is full of pride, but love is full of humility. So, so she shows love in her tears. She shows love in humbling herself. You know, whatever you're asked to do for Christ, don't be obsessed with what people think about it. Don't be obsessed with that. If you, if you get obsessed with that, I mean, it's amazing what, you, what you'll end up not doing for the Lord. I'm sure lots of people thought, look at this. But it didn't matter. It didn't matter. And, and that takes me to the other thing. She, she just makes that stand before the world. She, she humbles herself and she makes her stand. Like Mary um, let them say what they say. I will anoint his feet. No wonder what that Christ says, her sins, which are many, are forgiven because she loved much. You have to be careful how you understand that. I think if you've understood the incident properly, you will understand it the right way. But it's easy to understand the words themselves in the wrong way. When Christ says her sins, which are, are forgiven because she loved much, that doesn't mean that her sins are forgiven because she loved, as though her love was the cause of her sins being forgiven or the reason for her sins being forgiven. That's not what he means. He means that her love is the evidence of her sins forgiven. In other words, her love shows her forgiveness. Let me read it again. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven because she loved much. In other words, do you see, Simon, that this love is an evidence that she has experienced forgiveness of sins? Can you see that, Simon? Can you see forgiveness of sins at work here in her tears and in her actions? Just as your lack of actions demonstrate that your sins, little in your eyes, are not forgiven at all. We know she's forgiven because she loves. And last of all, just notice the, the way in which the Lord so graciously ministers to her, to, to her own lack of assurance. She just, he, he gives her that lack of assurance that he so needs in verse 50, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. He assures her, you have believed. You have believed. He also says to her in verse 47, that your sins, which are many, are forgiven. 
He he only says that speaking to Simon, but <laughs> he's looking at the woman. I don't know if you've noticed that, but um, everything he says, he says looking at the woman. In verse 44, he turned to the woman and said to Simon. So all the time he's saying this to Simon, he's looking at the woman. So when he says to Simon in verse 47, I say to you, her sins are forgiven. He's looking at her. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. Now, these are wonderful words. You have believed. Your sins are forgiven. And you are saved. Your faith has saved you. What's more, she has a, she has a new life. And she's to go in peace. Verse 50. You may have come here slightly troubled, unsure perhaps of where you really stand. Well, don't go home like that. Don't go home like that. Go in peace. Maybe you too are like that. Perhaps you logged into this sermon unsure. I I hope and pray that you log out quite sure that the Lord has indeed loved you and that the Lord has forgiven you. There is no denying that our Saviour is a great Saviour. Let's uh, close our time of worship uh, singing the praise of God in Psalm 130. Psalm 130. page 421 in the combined book, and we're singing to the tune Humility, which is a a very fitting title for a tune for this psalm. Lord, from the depths to thee I cried. Now, you think of that um, as the woman's experience, probably in her own home, having heard the Saviour preach, wondering if this is for her. My voice, Lord, do thou hear. Unto my supplications voice, give an attentive ear. Well, that's a request that won't be refused. And look how she sees herself. Lord, who shall stand if thou, O Lord, shouldst mark iniquity? That's so true. None of us could. But yet with thee, forgiveness is that feared or worshipped, literally, that worshipped thou mayest be. And we're told at the end of the psalm that there is plenteous redemption ever found with him. What an encouragement that is. And that from all his iniquities, he, Israel, shall redeem. The whole psalm to God's praise. O Lord, we pray that you would accompany all that was said and done with your great blessing and that you would bless uh, your servant who will bring the word to us by your grace this evening. Uh, Prepare him and enable him and accompany him in discharging that duty. In the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.